Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. It's good to see everyone. I see the uh, migration up north has begun, which means that Purim and Pesach must be shortly upon us. I want to uh, thank this morning's sponsors, Sandy and Sidney Goldschmidt, memory of his beloved father, Achaver Ephraim ben Achaver Moshe Yehuda, and her beloved mother, Sivia Bas Avra Matas Yoho, and Rita Geller, in memory of Howard Geller, Chaim David ben Yehuda Leib. Thank you for your generous sponsorship. And for those who will remain behind for the spring and summer, if you'd like to sponsor, you can speak to the, uh, the shul office. All right, we have a lot to cover as Parshas Tetzaveh is rich as every Parsha is, a lot to talk about. We also have Tanis Esther this week on Thursday, and Purim is rapidly approaching. And I want to begin by trying to wrap together the Parsha, Tanis Esther and Purim a little bit, and then we'll do our overview of the Parsha as we do every week and delve into the specific psukim as we like to do. The bulk of our parashas, Tetzaveh, deals with the issue of the Big Day Kahuna. Last week we studied the construction, the dimensions, the architecture, the symbolism of the Mishkan. And this week we continue having defined what the Mishkan is and the vessels therein. Now the Big Day Kahuna, what the Kohanim were to wear. We'll come back to shortly why they needed special uniforms. We talked about it at length in the past. You could listen online, the notion of what a uniform does. By Salavechik says, a uniform not only unifies those who wear it towards a specific mission and towards a purpose, but by wearing the uniform, which is external to you, you are reminded that whatever um, power that you have, whatever talents that you have, are not internal, they're not intrinsic, they're not permanent, they're external, they're bestowed upon you from the outside. They're only due to the graciousness and the goodness of the Almighty. They could be withdrawn any moment. So whatever uniform it is, be it the police, be it an army, be it the Israeli baseball team, who miraculously just won the second game, they're 2-0, and every sport, CBS Sports, ESPN, they're all talking about Israel's baseball team that has won two games in the World Baseball Classic. It wasn't even supposed to make it there. And it's undefeated. It'll be on to the next round. Bli and Hara. So... <laughs> Yeah. So Israel's baseball team, the success of that baseball team, of course, is their own hard work and talents and efforts, but they wear a uniform. The uniform is on the outside. The talents and the skills, says the Rav, come from the outside. They're on loan. They could be withdrawn at any moment. We should never feel they're owned by us. And so our Pasha goes through each of the priestly vestments for the regular week, for Yom Kippur, for the Kohen Gadol and Yom Kippur, and so on and, and so forth. What is their purpose? Torah tells us, The purpose of the garments are to bring, to bring kavod, to bring glory, and tifaras, to bring splendor. For whom? For whom is the glory and splendor? So this is Machlokas Rishonim, the commentaries debate. Does the fact that one is wearing a fancy uniform the fact that one is beautified themselves, is it to bring glory to the Kohanim themselves, according to some of Hashem? Yes. They are distinct and distinguished in their eye status, and therefore in their dress, and the covenant to Ferris is for the Kohanim. Others say no. The covenant to Ferris is for the Ribono Shalolam. The way we dress, the attitude we bring to the work we do, is ultimately in the service of the Almighty, it brings greater glory and greater splendor to Him. But my question is very simple. The Mishkan 
Beis HaMikdash are the epicenter of spirituality in the world. It's not only true for the big day, Kahuna, my question applies to all the vessels. The vessels are ornate. The vessels are made from gold, from precious metals. They have crowns and molding. The garments of the coin are very attractive to a degree ostentatious. Their entire purpose is l'chavot tifaris. Isn't that antithetical to spirituality? Wouldn't one expect spirituality to be all about plain and simple, understated, modest and humble? Shouldn't our shuls not be beautified and glorious and ornate and magnificent? But shouldn't they be the most basic, simple structures in the community? In other words, the place of spirituality should be the place of the least materialism. It should draw the least attention to the external, helping us all focus on that which matters most, the internal, the spirituality. If the Beis HaMikdash, the Mishkan, our Mikdash Ma'at, our shuls, are places of great ruchnius, the symbols of holiness and piety and virtue and sanctity, then why Lechavodah Glory and splendor and beauty and ornate. Isn't it antithetical? Isn't it something which is which is a contradiction. And I'd like to suggest that perhaps the answer to our parsha, our parshios, and really a modern answer, as our community is looking to do some campus renovations and other shuls, when they think about the shul, they don't just put up a plain box, unpainted, simple. They try to make it beautiful. Anyone ever been to the Belzer shul in Yerushalayim? Still haven't gone on a tour there yet, but it's just passing by the outside. It's lechavodu lesefaras. It's magnificent. It's magnificent. Why should that be? Isn't it antithetical to who we are and everything we believe? Why the lavishness and the opulence? Why not a more minimalistic approach? So Rav Futner has an incredible insight. This week we're going to read Parsha Zachor, as we always do before Purim. Parsha Zachor reminds us that when we left Egypt, when we were still fragile and we were vulnerable physically, when spiritually we were on a high, we had seen the incredible revelation of the Almighty, the ten plagues, the splitting of the sea, we were on fire. What happened? Amalek attacked. They came up behind us. They approached the most vulnerable among us. They attacked us. They attacked us. And ultimately we triumphed and we remember. We fulfill the mandate, what is likely, according to many, the only portion of Torah we read that is biblically mandated, that is midaraisa, according to most opinions. And why? Because we're obligated, Zachor, to remember it, and Lotishkach to never forget it. Why both? If you remember, obviously you haven't forgotten. If you haven't forgotten, clearly you're remembering. We've talked about that another time. But we have to remember what Amalek did to us. By the way, that war... Did we win that war with Amalek? No. We did not win that war with Amalek. Had we defeated Amalek, they would no longer have existed. They not only continued to exist, they continued to be a thorn in our side. Not only for the Jews in the desert when they came into Eretz Canaan, not only in the time of Shaul when he failed to wipe them out, but throughout Jewish history. Certainly according to the Rav, that Amalek is not a genetic nationality or ethnicity, but Amalek is a mindset, a philosophy, a way of being. They have continued to haunt us ad hayom until this very day. And yet, though we didn't defeat Amalek, we limped away 
Right? The great victory with Amalek was we survived. Right? You know the old Jewish joke about Jewish holidays. Tried to kill us, we survived. Let's see. Let's see. So we survived. Right? The, the bar is so low that it's not the Purim story that we defeated the enemy, we took over, we were Mishnah Lamelech. That's unusual. That's why Purim endures. Throughout history, the Megillus Tainus was full of more minor days where we didn't defeat the enemy. What was victory? What did it look like? Survival. You made it. Even if you limped away. Even if the other remained strong. But that was victory, was simply to survive. And yet, a few weeks ago, when we read that Yisro heard all that had happened to the Jewish people, and he came, he was drawn to join our story, our journey, our destiny. The Gemara Zavachim wonders, what did he hear? Rashi quotes at the beginning of Parsha's Yisro. We're going backwards. That's how slow we're going in our Parsha class, that we're going backwards now. Parsha's Yisro. So what were the three alternatives? The Gemara Zavachim, Rashi quotes two in the beginning of the Parsha. Either Yisro heard about Chris Yamsuf, he heard about Matan Torah, which only happens after in the Parsha chronologically, or he heard about Nechemes Amalek. So I ask you, heard about Nechemes Amalek, what did he hear? Amalek attacked the Jewish people and it was a draw? They survived? Ooh, wow, I got to join that people. It wasn't the, it wasn't the, the fact that the, uh, the many fell to the few, or the mighty fell to the weak. They didn't fall. Amalek survived. And we limped away. And yet Yisrael was drawn. Why? So it's always occurred to me, and probably because of the era in which we live, that what Yisrael was probably drawn to was, he knew and we know that Amalek represents evil. Amalek is wickedness. Amalek is the worst of what humanity does with free will. And Yisrael understood that if the ultimate, the pinnacle of evil, targets one nation and one people, people who are so fragile and vulnerable, it just got out of slavery, and yet Amalek, the symbol of evil, feels so threatened by that other people, what must you know about that other people? If Amalek is evil, that other people must be good. If Amalek is wicked, that other people must be holy. And Yisro says, if Amalek is consumed, they're obsessed. All they have it in for is this little people no one ever heard of. They were just born. They're barely even emerged from the womb of Egypt. And yet Amalek is obsessed with destroying them? I don't care what the result of the war was. The very fact that they're targeted, there must be special about them. Why do I say that resonates for us? Because the fact that ISIS, the fact that all these horrific terrorist entities are obsessed and consumed with Israel, a little country in the Middle East who should care about. If they represent the worst of humanity, if they represent evil and wickedness, then that is a point of pride for us. We wish that they'd pick on someone else. It's not a point of pride that we invite it, that we welcome it, that we want it. It's not a point of pride that we're happy about it. But if they are so obsessed and consumed by targeting one small, tiny little people, there must be something very special about that people. So Amalek chases the Jews out of Egypt. They attack them from the rear. And the Pasuk says, The whole essence of what Amalek did wrong was, What does it mean, 
So Shamu Amimir Gazun, the nations heard and they trembled. They heard about how nature was suspended and interfered with on behalf of the Jewish people, were filled with awe, respect, and admiration. But Amalek comes along in Asher Karcha Baderach. And Rashi says, you know what Asher Karcha Baderach means? It means that we the Jewish people and all who had heard what happened to us were on fire, enthusiastic, excited, dedicated, devoted, certain, beyond any shadow of a doubt, not only in God's existence, but His guiding hand in our life. And Amalek came, and they splashed cold water on our fire. Says Rashi, Asher Korcha Miloshon Kor, cold. They doused our fire, they extinguished our fire with their cold water. It wasn't just a physical attack, it was the cynicism, it was the sarcasm. We were red hot, and they cooled us off. How did they do it? What was the source of the cynicism and sarcasm? Oh, you're so inspired. You just came from Mashir. You think you're all that. You're so sure there's Hashem. You're so sure there's a purpose. You're so from. You're so sincere. You say, ah, let me tell you, the rabbi's a fraud. Let me tell you the class he gave, why it's not really right. And let me tell you, there is no God. And let me tell you, there's bad things happen to good people. And we know people like that. You're busy telling them you just came from this incredible class. You just read this amazing book. You just saw this incredible thing that changed your life. And they splash cold water on your fire. They put it out with sarcasm and cynicism. And what is its source? Says Rashi, the second interpretation, Asher Korcha Baderech, is Milashon Mikra. What's Mikra? Chance. Happenstance. Coincidence. You come and you say, you're not going to believe this thing that happened to me. Hashkocha Pratis. Siyat Dishmaya. Oh, Hashem loves me. Listen to this amazing thing. And you finish telling the person the story. Hashem loves you. Siyat Dishmaya. What are you talking? It's just a coincidence. There's no Hashem. There's no God. You think He cares about you and the thing and it worked. It's just a coincidence. They splashed cold water on us. A Amalek splashed cold water and put out the Jewish people's fire with their attitude of mikra, of chance, of happenstance. And says Rafutner, Amalek in perpetuity, Amalek time immemorial was our arch rival, our arch nemesis. Because their philosophy is the very antithesis of ours. For us, for we the Jewish people, everything is chashuv. Everything is significant. Everything finds its source in the Ribbonu Shalom. Nothing is coincidental. Nothing is random. Nothing is chance. Even that which we perceive and experience as painful or bad is by design and somehow is in our best interest. Somehow is for the good. We don't always understand it, but we root everything back to the Ribbonu Shalom. That is the Jewish philosophy. It is the Jewish way. It is how we endured oppression and persecution and attempted annihilation and extermination is to understand that we are not just creatures of randomness and chance, but everything is by design and everything is for a reason. And because we live our lives in that way and inspire others to see Hashem, Amalek is threatened because their philosophy is the antithesis. And what's their response? To mock and to make fun and to denigrate. They see others who PC awe and they undermine. They seek to demolish, to grade and to vilify. And I was yesterday in New York and my parents at a funeral and we had to get back somewhere. There was a big machlokas between the person driving us, my mother, and Waze. Which way to go? 
It's a big question. The machlokas, your mother and ways is a no-win situation. I don't know how you're paskin in that. But you know, I've written before about um, the symbolism of ways in our life. The notion of someone calling out directions and if you make a mistake, they reroute us without criticism. And there's a lot of lessons to learn from ways. But here's another that occurred to me in the backseat yesterday. Is that sometimes ways gives you a directions and you say why in the world would it send me that way I know how to go there's a much faster much more direct route why would it take me the securitous route I know better and every time I've done that I know better I sit in horrible traffic I'm stuck in an accident something there was a reason ways knew better we agreed on the destination but ways knew the better way to get there you know in life we sometimes think we know the direct route to our happiness. The destination is our happiness. And we think that's the direct route. And we're getting rerouted. Why are we getting rerouted? Because we don't know that if we would have gone the route that we wanted, we would have hit all kinds of obstacles. We would have hit all kinds of impediments that would have been painful, that would have been challenging, that would have slowed us down, that would have been hard to endure. And so we're rerouted a different way, a way we don't recognize, a way we didn't choose, a way which is foreign, a way which is unfamiliar. But really it's because our best interest is in mind about how to get to the destination we want called fulfillment and happiness. And we don't even appreciate or know what was avoided in the interim. So the Rebona Shalom, everything from a Jewish perspective is good. We're charged to live life with the exact opposite approach of a Amalek, of Mikra, of chance, and of happenstance. And Ravutner describes the different philosophies as what he calls koach hachilul and koach hahilul. Koach hachilul is to be machalel, to take sacred and make it profane, to be cynical and sarcastic about even that which is holy, to splash cold water on everything. That was a malik. Koach hachilul is cynicism and skepticism. It's the little voice inside our own heads also that says, Ah, it wasn't so impressive. Ah, that's not worthy of awe. Ah, maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe it was chance. Maybe it wasn't Hashem. The Koach HaChilul is the voice that mocks and denigrates. But the Koach HaHilul, to be Mahalal, Halal, is that capacity to, be, to live with awe, to see everything as incredible, to identify that which is admirable and worthy of honor, to admire the beauty and the greatness and that which is the most meaningful. So Amalek and Yisro, for example, saw the exact same events unfolding. And Yisro says, Wow! There's a God! Wow! So unusual! This is extraordinary! I have to see what it's all about! You know what Amalek says? Eh. It's a new expression that didn't exist when I was growing up. You hear it all the time today, particularly among teenagers and millennials. Millennials struggle with being impressed by anything. How was the show? Eh. How was the speaker? Eh. How was the food? Eh. How was the orchestra? Eh. How's your wife? Eh. Your children? Eh. How are you? Oh, great. <laughs> Everything's eh. Koach achilul, to be machalal everything. Nothing is worthy of awe. In other words, for something to be worthy of awe, you have to be humble. If you are the greatest, then nothing is greater than you and worthy of all. That's the battle of Amalek and the Jewish people is the Koach HaChilol and the Koach HaHilol. I wrote about it last summer. I told a story about uh, the piano of... Uh, of uh, whose piano was it? Beethoven or Mozart? 
forgot whose piano it was already. It's Beethoven's piano I wrote about. And the story of a, a young girl that came and played it and played some modern song and her friends all clapped when the great pianist of all time would stand at a distance and say, I'm not worthy. I can't touch it. There used to be a capacity for all. And a Wall Street Journal article that quoted science that talked about how important it is for our well-being to have experiences that induce awe on a regular basis. See nature. See something great. Study. Be exposed to something which is, which is magnificent. So that, I think, is what we remember every Parsha Zachor. When we reread Amalek and we remember Zachor, remember what Amalek tried to do. They tried to make you cynical and sarcastic. Amalek tried to introduce the word eh into your vocabulary. That was Amalek. Al tishkach. Don't ever forget that's not who we are. We, the Jewish people, you know what we're about? L'chavodu l'sefaras. Oh, wow. Look at the big day kahuna. That is magnificent. That is incredible. That's gorgeous. Wow, look at the mishkan. Look at the kalim. They're unbelievable. Wow, get to the base of Mikdash. Come to the Mikdash Ma'at Shul. It's ornate. It's beautiful. It draws, it elicits a sense of awe, of kavodul sefaras, that there are things worthy of praise, that there's beauty and splendor in the world. And so perhaps that's why one would think that the place that is the center of spirituality would be absent beauty and ostentatiousness, but it's the opposite. If we're going to be victorious in our battle with Amalek, then we need to see awe not only in the palaces and the mansions and in the secular world, but we need to see and react with that sense of awe, dafka in our holiest of places, dafka from the holiest of people. This was the philosophy of Slabodka. It's the big machlokis among the schools of Musr. Slabodka, Nevardik, Kelm, Godless Sa'adam or Shiflas Sa'adam. Does one grow when we emphasize the greatness of man? Or do we grow when we emphasize the lowliness of man? Kelm, Nevardik partially emphasized Shiflas Sa'adam, the lowliness of man. They would, they would uh, compete. Who got to clean the toilets in the yeshiva? They would put themselves in situations which were humiliating and embarrassing. Because when one realizes, I'm a nothing, I'm a gurnished, then one can attain greatness. But Slabodka had the opposite. Slabodka was godless Adam. Do you understand who you are? You're a child of the Almighty. You are angelic. You're potential. So the altar of Slabodka had a tailor on staff of the yeshiva. And if you were missing a button, you were not allowed into the base medrash. To understand the mindset and philosophy of Slabodka. If you were missing a button, let alone you wore the same shirt two weeks in a row and you had dandruff all over your shoulders and your pants were wrinkled. and you, If you were missing a button, it wasn't like in Slabodka they had massive wardrobes in their walk-in closet. You had what, it'd be legitimate to be missing a button. But if you were missing a button, you couldn't come in the base medrash. What do you mean? Bittal Torah. The altar would deny someone learning Torah missing a button? Yes. God Adam. The more you're a Ben Torah, the more you symbolize and stand for learning of Torah, the greater you need to appear with stature, with dignity. You know, the philosophy of Slabodka endured, not to say that Kalman Navardic didn't produce greatness, but almost all of the giants, particularly in America of the 20th century, 
who allowed orthodoxy to not only survive but to thrive were the product of Slabodka. Almost all. And what they had in common was a regality, a royalty in the way they carried themselves, in the way they appeared, in the way that they presented. I didn't have the privilege of meeting these Talmidim of Slabodka with the exception of one. My grandparents who lived in Elizabeth, Rabbi Tights. And you saw the way Rabbi Tights carried himself and appeared in his stature. And it wasn't arrogance. It was it was Godless Adam. It was Lachavar Ulusifaras. It was a mindset that if we're going to have awe, we have to live with a sense of grandeur and splendor and beauty. Not cynicism and sarcasm. Who cares about buttons? Who cares about clothing? Who cares? Cynicism, greatness, and a sense of awe. And that's, that's the combination of Zachor and Parshas Tetzava, the big day kahuna, Lachavar Ulusifaras. One thought on Tanis Esther before we get back into the Parsha. Another component of Tanis Esther. Tanis Esther is a very unusual fast day. Very unusual fast day. And it's a, in some ways, a fast day which is hard to understand. Generally, Tanis Esther, fast days that uh, fall on Shabbos, you defer until after Shabbos. We have a principle that that we don't advance something which reflects or represents something sad, something tragic, commemorating something tragic. And yet, Tanis Esther is the exception. Though it falls on Shabbos, Purim is Saturday night, Sunday, we will observe Tanis Esther when? Thursday. On Thursday. Why is that so? Question number one. Question number two. We generally have a rule that when there's a holiday, the day before... The men who go to shul are familiar with this rule. What do you omit at Mincha the day before a fast day? Tachanun. Because the day, day before a holiday rather, the day before a holiday, the day after a holiday are quasi-holidays themselves. You're not allowed to fast. You're not allowed to give a eulogy. And yet, Tanis Esther in an ordinary year falls when? Erev Purim. It's a really bizarre dichotomy. The end of a fast, you're going to Mincha to hear the laning and Haftorah of the fast day, you're already getting dressed in your costume. You're already lining up your bottles of wine. You're already getting festive and happy while you're yet still fasting. It really is a contradiction. It doesn't work. And how is it? Aren't we violating the rule? That heir of a holiday, you're not allowed to fast. And here we are, Tanis Esther is institutionalized as occurring when? In ordinary years, heir of a holiday of Purim. So the Rambam, when he codifies the different fasts, the Rambam is a stark contrast between all the other minor fast days and Tanis Esther. Writes the Rambam, Hilchos Ta'aniyos, the fifth chapter. Yesham yam The four minor fast days are why? Mipnei Hatsaros. How do you define Tsaros? Tsaros. 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 We had a lot of Tsaros. They tried to kill us, they tried to exile us, they tried to force convert us, they tried to destroy us. We know what one word you don't have to translate for the Jewish people is tsaras. We know what tsaras were. Says the Rambam, the goal of the ordinary of the other minor fast days is to commemorate the tsaras of our history and by invoking the tsaras be motivated to tshuva. I don't want any more tsaras. I'm done with the tsaras. How do we avoid tsaras? Tshuva. Righteousness, virtue, 
worthiness. If we are worthy, we can avoid for future tzaros. So by reflecting on the past tzaros, we're motivated to tshuva, and that is the goal of a fast day. She'iru bahem k'de la'orer ha'levavos u'luftoach darche ha'tshuva to awaken and arouse the heart. Watch some sad Holocaust movie. Don't want another Holocaust. Be a better person. It's a simple formula. It's not such a simple formula. But the goal is a simple formula. The prescription is a simple formula. Zakhtar Ambam. What about Tanis Esther? Where does that fit in? What sorrow is it commemorating? Writes the Rambam. Why do we fast Tanis Esther? Not. Not because of the calamities. Why do we fast Tanis Esther? Zecher Latanis. To commemorate the fast. What does that mean? Not Zecher Latzaros, but Zecher Latanis. To commemorate the fast. Now I understand fasting when reflecting on calamity to motivate tshuva. But why commemorate a fast? Why fast to commemorate a fast for the sake of fasting? What does Tanis Esther commemorate? If it's not to motivate tshuva, then what does it do? Why must we fast? And why do we advance it rather than delay it? And why is it allowed to happen right before a holiday? And the answer, and answer, the answer, is all about why we fasted in the first place. Why is it the fast in the times of Esther and Mordechai worked as the catalyst to bring the Yeshua, to bring the salvation. So we know the Beis HaMikdash had been destroyed. And here again is the second connection between Tanis Esther and Parshas Tetzava, the Parshios we're reading right now. Ahasuerus had predicted it would not be rebuilt. And when in fact, based on his miscalculation, the Beis HaMikdash had not been rebuilt, how did he celebrate that God's glory and splendor, the Kavod and Tifaris, represented by the Mishka and the Mikdash, was over, done with, finished. Ahasuerus' competition with God was done. Ahasuerus saw himself as the victor. God was disappeared. Pesamikdash is destroyed forever. How did Ahasuerus celebrate? He made a party. And what did he do with that party? What were the serving utensils he used at the party? He used the very kalim of the Pesamikdash. Titus was not the first to celebrate by displaying that he had conquered the vessels. Achashverosh takes the temple vessels and where is the big day kahuna? What we read about in our parasha, Tetzava, these holy garments that were to bring Kavod and Tiforos to the Kohanim and to God, Achashverosh flippantly, like a malik, wears them. He profanes them with his koach achilu. Mordechai tries to persuade the community, how could you go to that party? How could you go? They're serving out of the utensils, the kalim of the Mishkan. Achashverosh and his colleagues are wearing the big day kahuna, kahuna, making a joke of our entire religion. How could you go? But the Jewish people went nonetheless, and they toasted, and they admired the clothing, and they just wanted to fit in. They were afraid to stand out. Haman himself noted... That these are a scattered and fragmented and broken nation. This is not just referring to the geographic location that the Jews had been exiled 
and they were now spread far and wide. The Beis Hamikdash no longer was the centralized geographic place that united Jews everywhere. Perhaps Haman was not only referring to a geographic location of the Jewish people, but to their mentality. They were mifuzar u mifurad where? Bein ha'amim. They had assimilated into their host countries, into their host nations. They had acted as individuals, independent of each other, without unity, that had helped them survive the millennia. And when we are mifurad u mifuzar u mifurad, geographically scattered, and when we are existentially scattered, mentally scattered, religiously, emotionally, psychologically scattered, assimilated into our host countries, separate and disparate and apart from one another, is when we are the most vulnerable. And Mordechai understands that. So what does he do when it's time to go appeal for salvation? When he convinces, this is your Esther moment. This is why you were created, Miodeim Leis Kazos, this is why you are in this position. And don't worry, Esther. I have complete confidence God's going to take care of it. You don't want to be the heroine of the story? No problem. We'll fill in someone else's name. But no, who knows if this is why you are in this position at this time. And then Mordechai and Esther say, you know what we need to do before you go in uninvited? What is the antidote to being mifuzaru mifurad beina amim? The antidote is lech kinos kola yehudim. Go and gather all the Jewish people. In an incredible display of Jewish unity and camaraderie, the people agree to fast and pray. They withdraw from that assimilation and integration. They withdraw from participating in the feast of Achashverosh, and they unite over their common identity and their common cause of the survival of their people. Kol Yehudim, They come back again to a sense of being the Jewish people. And they fast, and they daven, in support of Esther, on behalf of Knesset Yisrael. And so when we fast, Zecher Latanis, when we fast, we're not commemorating, oh, they fasted? Let's relive that. It's like, you know, you'll get dressed up like, uh, who are those knights and the horses? They get dressed up in the park, and they... Renaissance fair, like the Renaissance fair, we'll get dressed up and we'll recreate what it was. We'll do a civil war recreation. Thomas says, there's not, oh, let's recreate the way they did it. They fasted, then the miracle came. We'll fast and then we'll celebrate Purim. Let's just recreate. That's not why we fast. Zechel Atanas doesn't mean let's recreate. It's not the Jewish Renaissance fair. The reason we fast Zechel Atanas is we are reliving the experience of Lech Kenos Kola Yehudim. We're recognizing that the prerequisite to a Purim, to a Yeshua, is no longer being mefuzaru mefurad bein ha'amim. That we have to be unified. We have to be united. We have to be together. The Rush answers that question. Says the Rush, Rabbeinu Asher, how could Tanis Esther fall right before a holiday? You're not allowed to fast on the air of a holiday. Zok the Rush, Zman kihila lakolhi. Incredible insight of the rush. The fact that they united and they gathered and they fasted and they prayed, that too, Tanis Esther is not a sad, somber day. It's not a day in contradiction to the joy and happiness of Purim. According to the rush, Tanis Esther is the beginning of the joy and celebration. You don't tell a joke on a Sarah Beteves. 
You don't have a huge smile on Shavasar Batamas. You're not filled with laughter on Som Gedalia. Tainas Esther, you're already feeling geschmack and joyful. Why? Because you're not fasting over something sad. You're fasting to recreate the sense of unity, the sense of praying for one another, the sense of togetherness. And so Tanis Esther is a happy day. It is a prelude, it's the preface, it's the very beginning of Purim itself. So it doesn't violate the rule you can't fast before a holiday. You happen to be fasting, but it's not a fast day. It's Purim. It's Erev Purim. What do you do on Erev Purim? You fast just like they did. But it's not a fast day. It's Erev Purim in which you happen to fast. And therefore it doesn't violate the rule. And therefore we advance it rather than delay it because it's not because of Puranusa. It's not the result of, oh, we were threatened, we were almost annihilated. It's the source of our solution. And just as it was the source of our solution then, so too it's the source of our solution now. The Ravid writes that attempting to relive the great act of Jewish togetherness and oneness, unlike other fast days, is not sad or somber. But the Ravid says, Tanis Esther has an element, a tinge of simcha. The simcha of being together. Okay, you're hungry. Okay, you're thirsty. But don't forget that hunger and thirst brought us together then. And when we use it to bring us together now, that togetherness yields a sense of simcha, of satisfaction, of being part of something much greater than ourselves. Okay, Parshish Tetzavah. Page 464 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. We're talking about Tetzavah all along. Just also Tanis Esther and Purim. V'yatat Tetzavah b'nei Yisrael v'yichu elech Hashem and Zayizach. Begin Parshish Tetzavah with the oil which is going to be used. And then we get to the big tekun. Bring Aaron, Achicha, as Bonavito, Moshe, bring your brother Aaron, his sons. Mitoch b'nei Yisrael, they are distinguished from the Jewish people. They are to serve me. V'yasisa big dekodash, make them these garments that are holy. L'chavod u'lesifaras. And what is their purpose? Why do they wear it? The next pasuk. To sanctify To sanctify him to minister to me. Is talking about the same thing or talking about two different things? So this we said is the Machlokas, the Ram, the Rambam, the Sforno, and others weigh in. Is L'chavod L'sevaris the glory and splendor of the Kohanim or of the Almighty? So you know the Zalacha, the Kohanim are forbidden from bringing the sacrifices if they're not wearing the Big Day Kahuna. A prerequisite. Wearing the Big Day Kahuna transformed their status that empowered them to bring the Karbonos. Without the uniform, they lacked the superpowers. They lacked that ability to bring the Karbonos. Which makes a certain... Rambam, peculiar, the Rambam in Sefer HaMitzvos, Mitzvah Lamed Gimel, interprets the two terms, Lekacho and Lechahanoli, as referring to two different functions of the Big Day Kahuna. The Rambam counts the Big Day Kahuna, which is strange, because the Rambam in his introduction to Sefer HaMitzvos tells us that when one mitzvah is subsumed under another, he doesn't count those other mitzvos. So the fact that the Kohanim have to wear the Big Day Kuna to bring the Karbonos should be subsumed under the Mitzvah to bring the Karbonos. Why does it have its own separate 
unique mitzvah? Why is it counted separately? So the Sefer Lev Sameach, a commentary to the Rambam Sefer HaMitzvos, suggests that the Big Day Kahuna actually serve a dual purpose. It's not a debate. Is the, is the Kavaru Tefaras to the Kohanim or to God? The answer is it's to both. The Big Day Kahuna have a dual role, and the dual role is represented here in show and Lechano Li. Lechano Li is to be a Kohen. It's not just about your genealogy and your genetics. That's part of your status. But you really gain your Kohen power when you wear the Big Day Kahuna. Only then can you bring the Karbonos and be of sacrifice. But the other role is even when not bringing the technical sacrifice is show. show is reminiscent of the Pasuk in Vayikra Chavalaf, Vikidashto. The Pasuk there says, we have an obligation to treat the Kohanim differently. Vikidashto. You can't use a Kohen, don't you? can't ask a Kohen to bring you a drink. The Kohen gets the first Aliyah. The Kohen is invited to lead the benching. A Kohen has a distinguished status, Vikidashto. We treat them differently. And that, says the Lev Sameach, is what Lekadsho is Vikidashto. So one of the, the Kohanim wear the Big Day Kuna partly in service of God, Lachanoli, and partly to distinguish themselves as their uniform, to bring their unique status and their stature of who they are, and that's reflected in the Likud show. The Shulchan Aruch in Orchaim Tzadiches says it's proper for a person to have specific begodim, designated garments for davening, and why, says the Shulchan Aruch in its commentaries? We have special clothing for davening. Some have a davening jacket, some have a davening hat, some have a davening gartel. Why do you have designated clothing? Says the Shulchan Aruch in its commentaries, similar to the Big Day Kahuna. That just as the Kohanim felt transformed in their attitude when they donned their Big Day Kahuna in service to Hashem, they elevated themselves, their stature, so too we transform our sense of feeling, our sense of seriousness, when we wear designated clothing for davening. So I saw someone quotes this Lev Sameach and offers a beautiful comparison. If the Lev Sameach is right, the Lekadsho and Lechaan Oli reflect two components of the Big Day Kahuna. That one component is in the service of Hashem and the other is to instill within us our status to reflect our elevated identity, then the same is true with the davening clothing. Part of it is to give greater honor and glory to Hashem by wearing designated special clothing. And part of it is to feel elevated and to feel enriched. Part of it is our own self-image and our own self-worth, our own sense of dignity and of who we are when we, when we wear. Okay, the parasha goes on to tell us all of the different garments and the different vestments and tells us on page 466 about the ephod. You make an ephod. How do you translate ephod? Look at the art scroll. Ephod is translated as? Ephod. It's hard to understand exactly what the ephod is. Look at Rashi. What is the ephod? In Basil Lafarish Maisa ephod v'achoshin asera mikros. And so on. Then he quotes the ephod also. The ephod looks like this belt, this garment that women wear when they ride 
when they ride an apron that women wear when they ride on a... How would Rashi know what women look like when they ride on a horse? Okay? He couldn't have seen it in a Jewish newspaper. There wouldn't have been pictures of women. So how did he know? Okay. And he tells us what it looks like. And then Rashi throws in... I'm sorry, where is it? It's a long Rashi here. can't find it in this long Rashi. But Rashi writes, I'll tell it to you in the English, Rashi writes, I have not heard nor have I found a brysa which explains the ephod's design. However, Libi Omerli, my heart tells me that it's belted around its back. So we have no brysa that delineates exactly what the ephod looked like or how it worked. But Rashi says, Libi Omerli, my heart tells me that this is probably how it worked. So Rashi says, we don't have a tradition. I have no Mishnah, I have no Brisa, I have no tradition. But Libi Omerli. Where in the world does Libi Omerli give Rashi the authority to say what he thinks it looked like? Libi Omerli. My heart tells me. Where does Rashi gain authority from his Libi Omerli from his heart? How can he provide a detailed picture based on his intuition? What is intuition worth in Halacha? So Rabbi Soloveitchik writes in the Rav Chumashir, the answer can be inferred from a passage from Abbas the Rabbi Nassim. B'nai Yisrael was crowned with three crowns. We know Keser Kahuna, the crown of priesthood, Keser Malchus, the crown of kingship, Keser Torah, the crown of Torah. Keser Torah does not merely signify gaining Torah knowledge, but elevation and pure purific- personal purification. Talmud Torah engenders a refinement of personality. Depth of understanding replaces superficiality as the individual undergoes a total transformation. One who is crowned with Keser Torah gains a new sensitivity and Weltanschung, a different view of the world. Rav Chaim Salavechik said the Rav, his grandfather, would compare his approach to resolving a difficult passage in Maimonides with a traveler who must reach his destination in the darkness of night. In the distance, he sees the flashing of a dim light that signals his ultimate destination, pointing him in the proper direction. Even if Rav Chaim was only in the initial stages of formulating his ideas to resolve the difficulty, he intuitively knew the approach to take. He had the sensitivity and perception to, underlying, to, to, to the underlying message and theme of a sugya, to look beyond the simple words on the page, to be able to uncover the treasure that lies within. One must perceive the faint blinking light and instinctively move in its direction. Keser Torah means that the individual is entirely enveloped and gains a certain intimacy with Torah. He's elevated. He's absorbed in inner holiness. He gains a special intuition and insight. He has the ability to feel the Torah's pulse and infer it through its thought processes. The Rav here describes that one who is worthy of the Kesar Torah, one who in their level of learning, combined with their level of piety, has earned the crown of Torah, is not just have data, they haven't just downloaded information. They don't just have an incredible thumb drive with incredible amounts of information. But they have transformed themselves. The Kesser Torah leaves them a different person. It transforms their heart. So that Libi Omerli, 
they gain not only Torah knowledge, they gain a Torah intuition. They're able to perceive, they're able to identify the Ratzon Hashem based on being steeped in Torah. Their vast, vast knowledge, which has transformed, that has expressed itself in their personal piety, leaves them changed people. They become instruments and vehicle for the Almighty to intuit the Ratzon Hashem. The Rav put it a little bit differently. It's not quoted here. But the Rav put it a little bit differently. And the Hesped he gave for his uncle, the Brisker Rav. Rav Yitzchak, Rav When the Rav gave a Hesped for his uncle, he said, you know, there are two stages in marriage. There's Erison and there's Nisuin. Erison is Hareat Mikudeshesli. The Chassan puts the ring on the bride's finger. Behold, you are betrothed to me, Kedas Moshev Yisrael. They have a union, but it's a partial union. On the one hand, to dissolve that union, it requires a, a get. But they don't yet live together. They haven't achieved Nisuin. He hasn't brought her into his home. They don't experience that level of intimacy. There's a bond which can't be ignored if it's broken, and yet the bond is not solidified to the point of Nisuin. We have two stages. And the Rav said, in our relationship with Torah, there are these two stages. Some achieve an erison. Some have a betrothal to Torah. You learn the Dafyomi every day. You're Kovea Itama Torah. You set aside time for Torah study. You have a familiarity. You have a literacy. You have a knowledge. There's a bond with Torah. You're not an ignoramus. You're literate in Torah. You have an erison. But there are a rare few who don't only have a familiarity that betrothal breeds, but they have attained the level of nisuin. They're married to the Torah. Marriage, marriage is a bond so strong that spouses can finish one another's sentences. It's not just you can finish the other person's sentence because you heard this story so many times <laughs> that you can finish the story, the joke, the anecdote. It's not only that's why you can finish the sentence of your loved one. If you're in a healthy marriage, you can finish the sentence because you know how your spouse thinks and feels and operates, what they want, what they crave, what they need, what they can't stand. You are them, they are you. You intuit. So if your spouse is not here and a decision has to be made on their behalf... You have a friend who has a casual relationship. You have someone who's familiar with them. They're literate in who they are. And then you have the spouse who has lived with them, breathed with them, knows them. Who better to intuit their ratzon? Who better to represent their will, what they would want? And the Rav, in talking about his uncle, said that we have some righteous tamidei chachamim who reached the level of nesuin with Hashem. They're not just Arison, it's not just betrothal. They're married to Torah, they're married to the Almighty. They can finish Hashem's sentences. They can intuit what Hashem would want. That's the level of devotion, commitment, selflessness. That's the level of knowledge, familiarity, and intimacy. That they can intuit that Ratzon. And I think that's what the Rav is driving at with Rashi. Where does Rashi come from? Libi Omerli. My heart tells me this is what it means. Rashi had nisuin with Hashem. 
The Rav said his uncle, the Brisker Rav, had nisuin with Hashem, could finish Hashem's sentences. Libi Omerli, it doesn't say it anywhere. I can't pinpoint a place. I don't have a tradition. But my intuition tells me this is what Hashem wants. That's I can finish his sentence. You know, we're living in a challenged generation that people who barely have Erosin with Hashem act as if they have Nesuin. The people who have Nesuin to Hashem have humility and modesty. And they still hesitate to finish Hashem's sentence. And they still are incredibly careful not to suggest they know what Hashem wants. And yet we have so many who, because they have Google or the Barilan CD, or they're super geniuses themselves, but they're not married to Torah, present themselves as if they know exactly what Hashem wants. Our tradition has never confused information with wisdom. Geniuses can download information to their brain. That doesn't give them the wisdom and the intuition that virtue and righteousness, that tradition and mesorah, that shimush tamidei chachamim, that being part of a mesorah community provides. Information is not wisdom. And we're living in a world where there are suggested changes and evolutions and revolutions within Torah Judaism itself. And historically we always have, and in this generation we should continue to lean on those who have the right to say Libi Omerli. Not those who are barely literate or familiar, but those who are steeped in Torah, who have been empowered to be the next links in the chain of the transmission of Torah. Those who are not only betrothed to Torah, but married, have been living with Torah for so many years. They go to sleep with Torah, they wake up with Torah, they think about Torah every waking moment of their lives. They are Torah, Torah is them. They are the ones positioned and empowered to tell us Libi Omerli on the things where you can't pinpoint the place, yes and no, you can't find exactly where it is. We've always relied on the Bali Hamasoda, the Gedolim of every generation, to direct us when you can't find the exact place. You know, we live in a generation, the information age, maybe now becoming with fake news, the misinformation age, that... You know, if you can't show me where it's wrong, then it's right. If you can't show me the paragraph, the sif in Shulchan Aruch, which simon does it say it's Asr, then it's Mutter. But that's not the way Judaism ever was. Because we have the text, we have the halacha, and then we have the meta-halacha. And the ones who are empowered to direct us with meta-halacha, we have Chazal, you know, sometimes the Gemara says, you know, technically that might be okay, but ain't ruach hachamim nochahimenu. The rabbis weren't comfortable with it. So why can't we read the Gemara and say, I don't care about the ruach hachamim. I like the first half of the sentence. First half of the sentence said, technically it's okay. The fact that ain't ruach hachamim nochahimenu, that's their business, that's not my business. But that was never the Jewish way. The Jewish way is to care about the ruach hachamim. What does it mean, ruach hachamim? Ain't ruach hachamim nochahimenu. What is a Ruach Chachamim? The spirit of the Chachamim. It means their intuition. It means their Libi Omerli. Technically they say, you can make an argument, it's okay, but I'm not comfortable with it and where it can lead. And I'll give you one example in closing. We didn't get to the Parsha class. <laughs> I wanted to go through the Psukim about the Carbon uh, Tamid. Such magnificent stuff on the Carbon Tamid. But I'll give you one example 
which is often referenced, I heard it recently referenced by Rav Asher Weiss, Shlita. You know, when the reform movement began, the biggest change they wanted to make was davening in German. That was the biggest change. It was a halacha community. They were committed to halacha. If you go to the famous, the temple in Poland, you'll see that it was separate seating to begin with. It began as a halachic community. And the first change they wanted to make was davening in German. Is that a radical suggestion? If you know halacha, the answer is no. Zabefersh Mishnah and Sota, Tzvila B'cholashon. You're allowed to daven in any language. One can argue you should daven in the language with which you're most familiar. It'll be the most meaningful. Tzvila B'cholashon. And yet Chassam Sofer came out and he said... No. Chassam Sofer said, My ruach, I'm a chacham, and my ruach, my libi omerli, this is not going to go good places. This is not going to end in a good place. And the Chassam Sofer of Moshe Sofer of Pressburg came out adamantly, vociferously, in protest of that, mod, that early innovation. That was nothing. Davening, when you get to the Shemona Esra, say it in German. You'll understand it better. Tefila b'cholashem. It's a... Beferish Mishnah and Sota, it's brought down in the Shulchan Arach. There is nothing controversial about that earliest innovation. And yet, the Chassam Sofer said, My Ruach, my Libi is Omer Li, this is a bad thing, it's not going to go good places. The Chassam Sofer came out fire and storm against it. And was the Chassam Sofer in retrospect right? Yesterday the conservative movement voted and I don't say this triumphantly, I say it with terrible sadness. The conservative mo- movement voted, 95% of those who voted, to allow non-Jews to have membership in their synagogues. Non-Jews now qualify for membership in conservative synagogues. So you tell me looking back, was that first innovation wise? Or maybe the Chassam Sofer and the, his Ruach, his Libi Omerli knew something. I am sure the newspapers in his generation, I'm sure the blogs and the Facebook posts and the articles all said, but you can't say, show me where it's wrong. Where does it say it's wrong? Adrabah, it says it's right. I'm sure everybody who had a keyboard wrote an article and a blog saying, Sam Sofer is a fundamentalist and he's a radical and he's not in touch with our community and what does he know and he doesn't see the future. He saw the future more than anyone else. He saw that future. And that's exactly why he was so concerned, because his Libi Omerli. So when Rashi says on the aphod, I can't find a brysa that tells me what the aphod looks like, but Libi Omerli, this is where it looks like. And the Rav says, from where does he derive the authority of Libi Omerli? When you're married to Torah, not just betrothed to it, you are granted a siyata deshmaya. Sod Hashem Lireyav, the Pasuk says. The Sod Hashem, the secret of Hashem, what Hashem wants is given lirayav, is given to those who have the greatest awe, the most familiarity, those who live with Him, those who are married to Him for the longest, who think about Him all day, every day in their sleep. They're the ones we turn to as the Balaya Masora to direct us using their ruach and using their lave, what the Ratzon Hashem really is. Have a meaningful fast Thursday, not a sad fast. As the Ravid said, a happy fast, a fast of achtus of lech kenos kola yehudim, and the Mirza Shem will merit the Yeshua like they had in the days of Purim.